Hello and welcome to the Farcast. I'm Alex Helmbrecht and I'm joined with my co-host Daniel Binkard. Uh, and we have a very special guest today. Chancellor Paul Terman is on campus for some board meetings. And so uh, he was so kind to get some time in his schedule so that he could sit down with us. Normally, we would record these interviews in uh, the Kreitz Hall basement studio, but uh, trying to socially distance ourselves. And we're on our beautiful track right now. The sun is shining on my face. And uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll have a great recording here. But thank you, Chancellor Terman, for, for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, so tell us a little bit about your background uh, where did you grow up, go to college, things like that? I grew up in a small town in South Dakota. Um, uh, most of the time I refer to say that I'm from Pierre, but actually I'm just across the river is a smaller town called Fort Pierre. Um, two different school districts, two different time zones. Um, the central and the mountain time zone go right down the river, right where I was grow- grew up. And so um, I would say that, you know, it looks very, very similar to uh, here in Shadron. The, the bluffs out here look almost exactly like the land my grandparents had. Um, town of about 1500, graduated from there in, in 1990 and then went to South Dakota State University. Um, ended up getting my undergraduate degree there, pursued a graduate degree program in communication, and then eventually down to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Um, after that, I took a job as a faculty member at the University of Northern Iowa, taught there in their communications department, uh, primarily taught quantitative research methods and statistics, and uh, ended up getting my first job back in Pierre uh, with the South Dakota Board of Regents in about 2006 as their director of academic assessment. So the so you learned probably time management at a very young age, it, having to juggle two time zones. The important thing was that when you're growing up, it's, the nice thing about South Dakota is you can drive when you're 14. And so you can only drive until 8 o'clock, but technically in uh, Fort Pier, it's mountain time. So you got a little extra hour. <laughs> you could drive across the river and still spend another hour on the, on the roads. And the state law is that bars can't stay open past 2 o'clock. And technically, one one final hour, if you hadn't had enough, you'd drive over to Fort Pier. At least that's what I've heard. Yeah, so right, a lot right. of people make that trek over and um, finish <laughs> off their night in Fort Pier, the two or three bars that we have downtown. So that sounds like a good system. <laughs> well, Paul, um, how did you become interested in the ad- administrative side, higher education? How did you get into that role? It's kind of a, a weird winding path. I had anticipated that I'd probably just stay at a, a a college or university, um, anticipated at some point that maybe become a department chair uh, at the University of Northern Iowa and then maybe uh, onto a dean. I think those were probably about the only aspirations that I had. But uh, this job came open in, in South Dakota right at a time when my wife's from the Black Hills area. We had three boys. Uh, she was interested in getting back closer to home. My parents still lived in, in Pierre. And actually, my mom worked for the South Dakota Board of Regents um, since I was one or two years old. So she, when she retired there, um, she had been the secretary, the executive director, basically my position in South Dakota for almost 37 years. And so um, I think I knew a little bit about system work, just having been around her. I'd gotten to interact with the executive directors there for a good number of years as I was growing up. And so... I think a lot of people find it difficult to to want to make that transition and do system level work. I thought it was a good opportunity to get my feet wet with administration that at some point maybe I'd return back to a campus and 
Uh, 12 years later, after getting four different jobs promoted to different elements, um, I felt it was time to maybe kind of venture out and, and see if I could take the helm of, you know, being a chancellor of a system. And I'm fortunate that the board was willing to vest their interest in me. And it's been a really good, great 18 months so far. Well, that's good to hear. And that kind of leads us into the next question. So you're a little, as you mentioned, you're about 18 months into being the chancellor of the Nebraska State College System. Uh, and there's certainly been some challenges, particularly the one we're living in right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, talk a little bit about the system's role in, in helping the state colleges make decisions and providing guidance um, for both students and employees during really a tough time, both personally and professionally. So I think that week in March when, you know, we were on spring break was was probably some of the most difficult conversations um, constantly on the phone with all three of the presidents, um, constantly visiting with our board, trying to make the, the right types of decisions for whether or not we would bring students back. And initially that was kind of our preliminary kind of approach that we thought getting our students back, the communities that we serve. At that point, you know, we had not seen a significant dip in the social gathering uh, expectations. At that point, it was 250 um, in a in a room. And we had sent out the letter saying we're going to have students come back and we're going to do all the steps that we needed to. And the next morning, the governor had a press conference with his leadership, as well as Matt Bloomstead, the commissioner of education. And a lot of the protocols were really starting to, to ramp down. And so we saw within just a, about a four hour period, it went from 250 people to 50 to 10. And I think, you know, before noon that day, we had our press release prepared to send back out to students and faculty. And so, you know, it's it's a difficult choice to say that you want to move completely to remote with no intention of coming back. Um, you know, the support services that I think a lot of students uh, are able to get on campus, how would we be able to maintain that? I think a lot of the institutions did a great job of repurposing personnel. Um, targeting them for students that they felt might be challenged uh, or uh, still need to have really strong connections. And so those were some of the HR-related decisions that we had to make really early on in this process. I think from then on, uh, our role really was to um, try to evaluate what's happening um, at the state level. How does that then segue with the public health districts and what they're doing what's happening with the CDC and at the national level. And so it became very common practice that we'd spend the day, we'd listen to the governor's press conference and ultimately some guidelines that we had developed the day before ended up needing to have to be changed again. And so we started this, what was about a three-page set of guidelines for the campuses to manage what was happening. And those have evolved now to about 22 pages of which is probably guiding 100, 150 pages of guidelines specifically to each one of the campuses and how they're approaching different things. So I think that was uh, primarily what I saw our role to be. How do we do as many things as possible in common? How are we making sure that we're picking the right type of guidance and pushing that to the campuses, but also having uh, the campuses involved in, in framing and fleshing out some of those guidelines? We started a process of, I mean, it was every afternoon at four o'clock, we had a video conference with the leadership teams on each one of the campuses. And then slowly we were able to kind of weave off of that. 
But I think until we started getting a little bit more certainty and you, you thought that, that maybe next week is when it became clear it was going to calm down, and then it was a month later, and then it was two months later. And so we're still at a process of really just our, is the testing process that we have in place um, the right approach? Um, should we be doing more? Do we need to be doing less? Is quarantining happening the right way? And I, you know, how do we report these things out? Those are some of the most recent decisions that we've had to tackle. Um, Shadron was the first to put up its website and, and track number of employees, numbers of students, how many have recovered, how many are in quarantine. Um, and that became kind of a model we began to use at the other institutions as well, as we saw other higher education institutions around the country, you know, looking, I'd pull them up almost every morning to see where we're at as a system. Um, and we're certainly doing something right in comparison to, to a lot of big institutions that have into the thousands of students at any given point in time that are testing positive, needing to be quarantined. Um, some real terse emails that are going out to students um, to model their behavior. And President Ryan, I think his first week, that was a great message of protecting the nest and just do these things. And we're going to get to be back here together learning um, and finding ways for us all to be successful. Paul, one of the changes this semester is the addition of the D term, um, a short session in December. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the thinking behind that and what kind of opportunities students would have in that term? I think we felt that that was going to be an option that we could at least explore. One of the things that we noted, I would say, in early July was that for our in-person, doing a compressed calendar is probably the best strategy. How do we find the right point to bring students back with a goal of not having all of them leave at Thanksgiving and then potentially come back with it or take it home if they have it? And so... When it was clear that we could compress that down into that 14 and a half week, get rid of our fall break and some of the other days that we have in there and supplement it with about another three and a half days of instruction that's a, or hours of instruction that are occurring just outside of the classroom, then, you know, if it's safe to return um, or even online uh, delivery of courses, we just felt that, you know, giving students an additional opportunity to potentially get another class out of the way um, was something to explore. I saw that the university system has kind of announced, or at least UNL has announced that they're going to not start until February, so they have like a three-week January term. Um, at this point, we want to continue on with our calendar for the spring as we have it laid out, if, if we can, but we have a variety of scenarios that we will explore. And if it gets to a point where we find that that was really successful this year, that a lot of students took advantage of it, um, our faculty felt that it was a, a, a really good investment of their time to gear up and, and do a really concerted, um, really structured in-depth class. Um, and students were successful with that. This may be something that we would replicate into the future as well. I start to think about how we can do a variety of things that right now are really not possible for our students. So, you know, internships are great sometimes very difficult to do during the semester and still keep up with all of your other coursework unless you do a lot of online classes. But if we had our terms done by December and we didn't start until Jan or till the uh, early February, that would give about you know a good two-month period where students could do a targeted internship, a really in-depth internship uh, with a company or a business or industry, which will be an important piece of what we're trying to drive as our workforce initiatives. So we're really excited about seeing what students think of it and then uh, using that feedback to determine, is this something we want to do uh, long-term just simply because 
Um, I think we should always be thinking about how we are constantly evolving the, the higher education system. You know, if we had this all to design again, I don't think we'd be taking very many summer breaks. We're still operating under kind of a seat time, agrarian type of uh, higher education and K-12 system that I think this is probably one of those uh, episodes that's going to certainly begin to change um, how we look at it and our willingness to really reflect and, and modify things down the road. So part of your job is advocating for the state colleges to, to government officials and other influencers. So give me and Daniel an, an elevator pitch. We're on the 11th floor of High Rise. We're coming down from the penthouse. And so you have 11 floors to tell us why are the state colleges so important to Nebraska? I think we certainly continue to fill that extremely important affordability uh, element for a four-year degree here in this state. Um, the opportunity for students to still come to a relatively smaller campus environment, um, the opportunity to interact and engage more closely with faculty and staff in, in compared to what you might be able to get at some larger institutions. One of the things I think I'm most proud of in our strategic plan is that staff to, to student ratio is at one to 10. Um, some institutions it's one to nine. And so that one-to-one -one connection is extremely important. And for the types of students that we serve, a lot of first generation, 50, more than 50% of our students fall into that category. Um, a larger number of students who are coming to us with Pell. I think we've seen um, almost a, a five-fold increase in the diversity in our campuses over the last decade. And so we are continuing to kind of drive student success um, as a, a model for the state. But at the same time, how does it then uh, serve the rural and kind of regional economy that we were put here to serve. So, you know, I think a lot of people look at systems and say, how many institutions is too many? Um, do we really need, with UNMC, seven different public four-year institutions in the state? And I would say for a state as, as large in, in land mass as we are, if you took Shadron out of the panhandle, then we, we might as well say that we're giving up on the panhandle. And we need to be able to continue to recruit students here who want to stay here um, with every intention of how do we filter them right back into the local communities that they come from. And, and we're doing a great job of that. And I think the RHOP program is a, a, a prime example of something that was installed in 1989, a program that was able to work and function with UNMC, uh, basically a two-page two set of agreements um, that nobody felt the need to really uh, dive into and put detail to, and it's been able to produce the types of outcomes that it has. Um, and w our goal is to how do we do that with business administration? How do we do that with rangeland science um, and keep as many Nebraska students here and returning back to the local communities to maintain um, the panhandle as best as we can? Well, that kind of leads right into uh, something new at the career scholarships that uh, the uh, the legislature and the governor have approved at, uh, what is it, a million dollars in scholarships um, to those majors that you just mentioned. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, how that's going to be a good opportunity for our students and our region. I think the, the key to that program really is that how do we entice and now require students to do an internship, a cooperative experience, or a, um, some form of field experience prior to the time that they leave. The data suggests that uh, the vast majority of students who do an internship, about 70% will eventually take a job at the company that they work for. And 
what adds even more value to that if you if you do a paid internship with that company. So a paid, meaningful internship experience uh, is the major element that we will continue to work with business and industry around the state to accomplish. So our first cohort of students, the unfortunate thing is we just get funding for that program just a week before the start of the term. So it was difficult for us to utilize it as a new recruitment strategy to entice more students to come. We can use it for transfer students here this coming um, spring. And the other nice thing is we can use it for students who are outside of the state. So the ability to pull from Colorado, from Wyoming, South Dakota, have them come here with every intention of getting them connected with the business so that they don't leave once they're done. But that million dollars is going to be so influential in our ability to not only demonstrate to business industry that we've got these high caliber kids that we want to place with you. And how do we start to create kind of that public-private partnership, not only in generating additional funding? Uh, President Ryan had noted that he was successful in getting some matching grants uh, with a foundation to uh, spearhead kind of his, his business program that he implemented last fall. And so we'll begin to not only utilize the state dollars, but leverage those against public dollars to get more students here um, and then into the business and industries that we have. Also note that the million assuming that the legislature continues the investment that was intended by Governor Ricketts, um, that grows to $2 million next year, $3 million, and then $4 million by the time we hit year four of the program. And that will be uh, a, a huge investment into the workforce of the state. And by that point, we're hopeful that we'll have some key results to show how successful it's been. And as a result, hopefully, the willingness to make continued investment or even increasing those investments down the road. So it's it's something that we were on the downhill slide. It makes it through the first reading at the budget with the Appropriations Committee. It comes out of there clear. And then first reading is done. We still have two more readings to finally get it approved. And then COVID hit. And it didn't look like it was ever, it was like two years in a row, we are just right on the verge of getting it. And, you know, I'd say Senator Stinner, um, chair of appropriations, was a, a very big advocate for that. Uh, Speaker Shear out of Norfolk was very intent on making sure that, you know, in his last session, this was something um, that he could bring back to a rural community like Norfolk. And it came back in those closing days, goes through its two um, rounds of, of hearings and really no opposition from legislature. So I think they certainly see the value that this program not only can have for us, but the entire state's economy down the road. Yeah, it was definitely heartening to see that uh, when I saw the one of the whatever news story it was that that had been approved. And I thought, good, that we, we needed some more good news like that this year. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it definitely sticks out in a year like this. Um, <clears throat> so you're you're a busy guy this week. There's a, the dedication for the track and field complex. Um, groundbreaking for math and science. And obviously, you know, the, the top item is the podcast that we're recording right now. <laughs> but um, <laughs> to speaking a little bit about math and science, CSC is really in an era of unprecedented construction. And Daniel and I can attest to this because we went to school here and there really wasn't a lot that happened for a while. Um, but talk a little bit about that math science uh, renovation and construction that's just about to occur this fall uh, and what that's going to mean for the campus and for the region and also for the state college system. It's, it's going to be a huge um, investment from the state. Um, when all said and done, it'll be our largest 
um, fiscally the largest project that we've ever done in the state college system. I traveled down here before I actually started the job in January 2019. Um, I came down and, and visited with the campus, and President Ryan took me through the building. It was still in operation, and I thought to myself, yes, this, this needs to be a significant priority. And it was moving down that path before I even arrived. I came in January, and then you know it was in the governor's budget recommendations, and we worked pretty hard with the legislature because the first round of the budget really only allocated the existing bond revenue that comes due at the end of this fiscal year was only going to get us to 10 years, which is about only two-thirds of the project that we really wanted. And so we thought through some pretty creative strategies of allowing us to go early rather than waiting until next year to even do the planning process that we have all done. Let us go early if the funding from the foundation and the college could be used to pay that first bond payment and then give us an extra four four years on top of the 10 years that the governor had proposed and the legislature was supportive of that. And that has helped us, you know, put us where we're at right now. Every year that we've delayed that project, it was a top priority identified by, by the board of trustees back in 2014. And I remember the conversation with Senator Stinner. He's like, I thought it was cheaper than this. Why is it all of a sudden it's $28 million when at, wasn't it just 24 a couple of years ago? And Steve Hadavi, our uh, who oversees all of our uh, large projects had indicated that's the rate of inflation that we see. So us delaying another year is not only going to increase it um, dramatically, but at the same time, we don't know what the bond market's going to look like down the road. So I think as we start to move things forward, we, the pandemic, not certainly a driving force for that, but we had probably gotten some of the best bond um, outcomes um, from state investments that we've ever seen, an additional $2 million than what we were projecting back when we were discussing with this with the legislature, which allowed us to do a variety of other additional things to that project. I think we're going to see a number of things come out from this, not only our ability to recruit students, Rangeland Science, as I look at that up on the, the east ledge there, um, saw about a 28% increase in the number of majors that it had um, over a five-year period. We use that data to make our argument that this is going to get the return on investment that you want. Also, the, the regional hub that this creates for a lot of local K-12 schools that come now for the planetarium, just think what they're going to experience when they come to the new site, the new planetarium, um, and be able to attract those students to come in. I think we also know that um, facilities are important to students, but they're also important to faculty. So we looked at the, you know, the age of our faculty in the STEM fields and, and knew that in the next few years, we may see some retirements and we need to entice really talented um, people in biology, chemistry, mathematics, uh, to make sure that we give the, the high caliber education that we have been doing now. So you work those three things together and this was the right time um, to, to invest in this project and it, a uh, year and a half, I think we're going to start to see all of those types of tangible outcomes start to emerge. I remember one of the appropriators, I was arguing the need for the building, the, you know, go to the 15 years like we finally were able to, to get them. And they were like, you can stop the hard sell. It, 
we we've seen the building. You don't need to argue uh, the u- utility and the need of that building. We just need to find what's the right financial strategy to move it forward. So we were just very fortunate last year that we were able to pull that all out. And you know, uh, credit to the governor um, and and coming out here and, and seeing that need, and then the legislators who came out and, and toured it as well um, were really good advocates for the Shadron, but then uh, in in all the state college system. So our listeners are going to want to check out our uh, webcam we've got running. It's going to keep an eye on the construction of that math science facility. Right now it's showing a beautiful exterior shot with nothing going on (laughs) because they're working on the inside. But uh, stay tuned for that. It's uh, going to be exciting as they add that new wing on. Well, and and give a plug about the uh, the, kind of the This Old House tour. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I did a couple videos on uh, kind of a historical look at where the the building currently is. Uh, with Joyce Hardy um, and Stacy Mintleiter, who's one of the office assistants over there, uh, so we've we've kind of been gathering up um, an archive, a historical record of what that place used to look like, and it's going to be really exciting to do another tour video once it's uh, complete. Well, Paul, I want to shift gears a little with you here, and uh, I understand um, you've got uh, some some wrestling in your history. Can you tell us a little bit about that? People always assume, just based on how successful my twins were, that I must have wrestled in college, and I did not. I mean, I was I wrestled in high school, um, had a high school coach that was my coach from you know kindergarten all the way till I was a senior, and uh, just really enjoyed the sport quite a bit. I I placed in in South Dakota when I was a senior. I'd gotten third. I was really close in the semifinals and just wasn't able to make it into the finals or win a state title, and. I eventually went on to officiate in high school in South Dakota. I was still going to school um, and then transitioned down to Nebraska. I just didn't want to take the test, and I kind of ran out of time. And then I started having kids, and it became more difficult. But I think I was just very fortunate that I introduced my my boys to the sport. Um, they really seemed to like it. It's it's big in, in Iowa, and so we had gotten started down there before we moved back to Pierre. And I think the the thing that I – really appreciate most is the ability to to move into the peer community um we had the right things were moving in a direction that they needed to but i think the first year we moved back there we didn't have uh maybe made about six or seven kids to the state tournament but nobody in the high school program made it to the second day so nobody placed and uh, you knew we had a really good coaching staff, just the, the talent of the athletes just wasn't behind it. They, they were all shifting to other sports for one reason or another. Um, had gotten together with the, quite a few dads, and, and we just started kind of building a youth program that we thought was going to help our kids be successful down the road and just started with the fundamentals. And so I ended up being the president of our youth club for about uh, four years, vice president for one year, and was still very active when I ended up leaving. Um, But you take a 10-year later, it actually didn't take that long. About when my uh, twins were in seventh grade, the team won the state tournament. They won it the next year. The next year, well, I'm sorry, they were sixth graders. The next year when they were eighth graders, um, they got second. And then when my boys finally made it up into the lineup, we won their last four years, the team title. Um, My son William won four state titles, and then his twin brother made it into the finals three times, won it twice, 
and about the only reason he didn't win it four or three was because his twin brother was at his weight class. Um, I wish they still had a 98-pound weight class because the Terman boys are not big. Um, <laughs> but I really enjoy the sport. My wife loves it as well. Um, Brett Hunter out here, I follow him on Twitter. Um, he's given me some wrestling apparel for Chattering, and so I'm excited the opportunity to come come watch them compete whenever well if he doesn't want the the duel to be blizzarded out or canceled because yeah, of the weather um maybe i just have to watch those things online but um, very much enjoy the sport i still have a son uh my son gabe is a sophomore in high school this year and we tried to i wouldn't say we picked a high school in lincoln just based off of wrestling but we looked at the school that had really good academic score and the year before we moved they had won the state title at lincoln east and so, all right, that's where we're going to find a house in the district and make sure that we get there with that great coaching staff. And the unfortunate thing is we get there and the number one rated kid at 106 is at Lincoln East. The number one rated kid at 113 is at Lincoln East. And our son Gabe only weighs about 106 pounds. And so we're hopeful that this year um, eventually he, he can crack the lineup and we'll have a really solid starting squad um, assuming that they get to wrestle. But if we keep wearing our mask, I think it'll all finally work out for us. So I'm curious. I covered wrestling a lot when I worked at the Scottsbluff Star-Herald. Um, and then when I was the SID here, obviously I was involved with wrestling. I feel like there's two types of parents, the quiet type and the loud type. So which category do you fall in? I, I think I'm quiet. It would depend on which stories you hear, though. <laughs> um, you know, I when I coached my sons, I tended to be a little bit vocal. And then finally, the exciting thing is to be able to hand them off to their, their high school coaches and their middle school coaches and, and let them be the one that, that guides things. I also a pretty good photographer, so I could get down on the mat, take pictures, um, and take pictures of my boys and everybody else. But... I, when my son, William, was a freshman, he was in the state tournament. I was down on the floor. He got done, pinned his kid in the quarters, and now I'm watching some of the other kids that I had coached growing up. And this young man, this Austin Sanger, was in a very tight match where I thought the kid was stalling bad. And I was kind of kind of chirping to the ref. Like, it's like, where's the stalling call? I said that once, and I'm like, he is stalling. And he turned around and came right at me, and it's like, you do not talk to me. You get off the floor. So I had a media pass that I had gotten from our, our school, and I kind of go and sit down on the edge, and the people from the athletic association have to come over and cut my tag off. And I'm like, I'll, I'll just go up to the stands. And that literally, I asked two questions, and I apologized to the official afterwards and never went down on the floor um, after that. But for the most part, I tend to be pretty quiet. Um, and I respect what the officials are doing and, and, uh, have from that point on, I never make a comment about what they're t calling on, on the mat. It, it's funny. You mentioned taking photos, uh, UNK has a great wrestling program and their former coach is now their AD, Mark Bauer. And he used to take all the photos. I can remember we'd cover wrestling events We're like, who, shouldn't this guy be coaching, but he's down there taking photos. So he's doing double duty. Yeah. Um, so we've reached that point in our interview where we have five quick questions. We'll just go back and forth. But first thing that comes to your mind, uh, and the first question is, a favorite book or author? 
I love David Baldacci's series of books, but I would say my favorite most recent book has been a book titled Dream Hoarders. Uh, Richard Reeves wrote this book, and it's more about economics than anything, uh, but it has a really good section in there on how the middle class has been successful at kind of hoarding a lot of the scholarship and internship opportunities that should be devoted toward the lower class. Um, you know, he, he argues that there may not be a glass ceiling when it comes to the middle class, but there certainly is a glass floor um, that the upper 20 percent have structured things in such a way that it makes it very difficult for anybody to move between um, those different layers of where you're at sociably now. And I think we're cert certainly, certainly starting to see that uh, more aggressively now with some of the unrest and the uh, systemic racism. I think that is becoming quite evident. Hmm, sounds interesting. Yeah. Uh, what professional achievement are you most proud of? I think serving on the school board in, in Pierre, I did that for five years. You know, uh, some people had encouraged me to run. Um, it was a pretty contested race and had gotten that position. And then I think why I appreciate it so much is that it compounded into so many other things. Um, then I became, you know, we needed a representative from the school board on the United Way board. And then I became the chair of, of that o over time. Um, and a variety of other different boards and, and things that started to uh, surface out of that. I liked help guiding the, the uh, system, um, our school district there, as, as well as I think it really helped me understand how do I need to best communicate with the board that I now work for um, in the same way that I expected the superintendent to, to provide information to our board um, while I was on that position. How many states have you been to? Well, I've only lived in three, so Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. I think with all the different conferences and things, I've I've probably hit at least 35 or 40 states. There, you know, Hawaii, Alaska, um, kind of the outer regions, but I've I've been to quite a few. All right. Uh, what was some good advice that you received as a student? Well, the and I try to dispel this to my sons to treat college like a job. If you had treat it that, you know, you need to wake up every day, 8 o'clock, whether it's class, going to the library, doing the other activities that you want, for the most part, you can be done with almost all of the activities or work that you, you want to do um, by about 5 or 6 o'clock. I didn't really kind of embrace that uh, advice until I got into graduate school, you know, having a couple of very late nighters trying to finish up on my first sets of graduate papers. I finally said, I'm, I'm done with this. And I, I'm going to get up, go to the office right away in the morning at seven. And for the most part, I think throughout my PhD program, I was done with the vast majority of my work almost every day by five or six. Uh, PhD program, taking my comps and everything, that extended. It was a seven-day-a-week enterprise, but um, it's all paid off. And final question, what is what is one word that comes to your mind when you think of Shattern State College? Now, this was a tough one when I saw your list. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'll say home. I think primarily, as I described at the beginning of the uh, discussion, you know, this looks a lot like where I grew up. It looks a lot like western South Dakota, 
And the first time I drove down through Shadron um, on my way to Denver a number of years ago, I thought that same thing. This is just kind of a transition of the Southern Hills. And every time I have the opportunity to come back through, you know, to come up through Ogallala and, and drive through the Sand Hills and then hit the bluffs and everything. And just looking out right here, this, this looks like Fort Pier. It looks like home. So I would use that term to describe it. Well, thank you so much for, for carving out some time in, in your very busy schedule. And, and we really appreciate having a chance to visit with you. Today. Absolutely. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Paul.